Got everyone, welcome back to the Side Hit Podcast. I'm your host Pat Tony, and today with us we've got Tim Pierce, otherwise known as Wallow. Welcome, Tim. <laughs> Kia ora, Tony. How you doing? Not too bad, bro. Been a good summer. It has been a fantastic summer, thank you. Yep, enjoying a lot of these warm Central Otago days. Lots of time in the lake, and I have uh, just had my first child little boy Harry so that's been my life pretty much being oh, a dad it's a rad dad club just got a bit radder oh you're too kind mate yeah um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm a rad dad yet but I'm certainly in, enjoying the early days of it it's uh it's pretty incredible we'll kick things off Tim where are you from and how'd you get into snowboarding uh originally I was born in Papua New Guinea uh, that usually throws a few people off um but was born there and then moved to Wanaka at the age of six little bit of a contrast from um, the tropics to Wanaka, but basically my parents wanted a, a different place to bring their children up. So how did Papua New Guinea uh, get in the picture then? <laughs> yeah, so mum and dad were in education, so they were both teachers, and they met literally in the middle of the highlands in one of the most remote parts of Papua New Guinea. Uh, they lived there for about 20 years, and, and uh, it was a pretty different way of life for them, but it basically it was too dangerous to bring a family up there so mm. they were looking for a place that was a bit safer um we were meant to move to australia but they went for a holiday through new zealand and and landed in wanaka and they're just like this is it and uh yeah i'm pretty grateful that they chose to stay here yeah right so you were actually raised in wanaka from from the age of six yeah so i right. think I, I think i count as a local i went to primary school and high school here all right here yeah. we go well if you got these um Brits that have come in on a two-year visa claiming local, I reckon you can as well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think I can sort of claim local yet. How no. long have you been here? Since 99. But only, uh, only full-time since 09. Yeah, I'll give it to you, mate. I'll give yeah, it to you. Yeah, well, yeah, if the kind warriors can claim it. Then. <laughs> <laughs> mate, if you're running this podcast, I think you're a local, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and we have got way off topic. Well, how did snowboarding get into the picture then, Tim? So like every Wanaka Grom, my family kind of threw me into the hills, and that's how I got introduced to snowboarding. I was probably, I don't know, six or seven. It's all a bit blurry back then, but I know there was cross-country skiing, uh, downhill skiing and snowboarding, Um, and I've just got early days of renting a board from Good Sports for 50 bucks for the season or something like that. I think I had a hammer, hammer snowboard. It was like white with a yellow graphic. And yeah, we'd go up Cadrona on the weekends in the bus. Maybe it was $5 a return ticket, but it was it was freedom. Like It was literally mm. like your parents put, you put you on the bus and you were gone. Um, and yeah, that's kind of memories of my childhood up there, just being little rascals snowboarding around or skiing around a mountain that just seemed huge when you were a kid. Um, Mm. who else was snowboarding with you at this time Uh, at those times it was just a lot of my school buddies Um, I mean well Mitch Brown was a little bit later on but so Toby Crawford who's now my business partner in a production company I definitely snowboarded with him as a grom Mm. Uh, Stuart Smith went skiing with him but yeah just a couple of the so is this sort of after the Will and Jar yeah, well, Will, Will and Jar and that are a little bit older than me, so they mm. were kind of like the cool kids that were, I don't know, maybe Will's five years older than me, so as an absolute grom, I wasn't in the mountains uh, riding yeah. around with him. We kind of just had our own crew. Yeah. Oh, sweet. And yeah. how was the first day on the snowboard? Remember? 
The actual first day on a snowboard, I don't know if I have a clear memory of that, but the first time it clicked, or the first time I was like, whoa, this is it, I can vividly remember coming back from Captain's on the top cat track, just, just near where the top station is there, dropping off the side of the cat track into powder, and I was like, ah, this this is it, this is snowboarding, and it's that kind of weightless feeling that we still all search today. Mm. Um, smashing around the hill through power-ups and doing hacks and I was like this is this is it sweet yeah yeah nice and what was your first board like your first board that you owned first board that I actually owned that's a very good question I think I had all sorts of hand-me-downs when I got into photography which is kind of coming later in the piece here but they, they were probably the first boards that I owned was maybe like a hand-me-down from tim watson or something like that oh, maybe right. a, so, a libtech or a forum or i can't even remember were you that. just renting the whole time yeah yeah so that's how it worked when we were groms we'd just rent boards for the season from good sports all right happened, yeah. and were you um at the time were you paying attention to like pros that came or magazines or things like that as a real young grom I don't think I was that hooked into looking at things internationally yet. I was just so stoked being a kid on my home mountain. It kind of wasn't until in teenage years that I started looking out for kind of inspiration within the sport. Right. Mm. The reason I ask is, I remember, because I'm assuming that this is about the 90s, mid-90s or something there. Yeah, something like that. And, yeah, just remember there was a lot of internationals coming and be like, no way, that's... Devin Walsh and those dudes. Yeah, yeah. I don't get me don't get me wrong. I think when we got a little bit older and the likes of Sean White would pop up at your local mm. mountain, you definitely knew about them and you definitely yeah. aspired to them. Yeah. Um, it's funny for me snowboarding though. I never wanted to be a pro snowboarder. I just enjoyed snowboarding. I mean, I'm I'm hopeless at snowboarding to be honest, but I absolutely love it. Mm. And that's part of the direction that kind of led me to cameras later down the track. I think. And so was this time when the board house was down behind the. Where the curry restaurant is. Yeah, you? yeah, you're opening some memories there. Not definitely um, was an annoying kid going in to see Rion there for sure, <laughs> for sure, and skating the the bowl and the mini ramp back behind there. And actually, when the board house was up near Foursquare as well, mm. up on Upper Ardmore Street, yeah, yeah, it goes even further back. Yeah, yeah, Wanaka yeah. floods, eh? Yeah, and then it went up, up, yeah, up yeah, hill. crazy. Yeah, so I remember Maddie Proctor was working there, right. And I didn't know who Maddie and Dion, uh, Dino Johnson. Yeah, yeah, Dino Johnson. Yeah. And I didn't know until like years later. It was like put two and two years. Like, holy fuck, you guys served me. Yeah. Holy shit. But that place wasn't an institution as a Wanaka Grom. Going Mm. in there and seeing the product on the walls, it it was you know a Grom's Mm. heaven for sure. And we were definitely those kids that would go in there that would never buy anything never had any money but loved being in there yeah and you'd definitely look up to all the older older lads in there for yeah. sure so i really felt that with their first shop yeah. um so you had that room on the other side that was had the pool table and you could watch videos and shit and yeah mate yeah. You're, you're opening my memory bank up to things <laughs> i didn't know existed that's awesome um, yeah. and then yeah skating the world's smallest vert ramp yes yeah with a real kooky extension and then that bowl on the end yeah yeah hot summer days going over to new world and getting a 99 cents bottle of coke and then snack shack for some chips <laughs> that, that, that was absolutely yeah. living yeah. getting yeah. getting sunburned <laughs> yeah. yeah oh yeah. god <laughs> <laughs> oh, i wish i could still subside on that diet now yeah mm. 
the simple things though, man. Mm. So before you moved in photography, did you, um, how was things? You were just in school and just doing the Wanaka trip? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, as I said before, growing up here as a Grom, you're kind of thrown into the outdoors. And in my early teenage years, I started getting really into mountain biking, and that I came, became quite obsessed with that quite quickly. <laughs> and that kind of uh, spawned my passion for taking photos, to be honest, because we would be out there jumping off stupid shit and exploring in different places with a bunch of cool people. And um, yeah, I wanted to share that. And this was kind of at the time that digital cameras were just coming about like very very early days and I was a bit of a digital kind of techie kid I was already like coding websites um, from scratch (laughs) so it was this weird mix of like being a digital nerd kid but liking the outdoors and then the camera was kind of the thing in the middle of all of that Mm. and um, yeah that really inspired me to kind of it was biking that inspired me to pick a camera up really and was that just one of those moments like fuck this is so rad we got to document it Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And I think as a, it was just so simple as a kid, you know, your kind of kudos and your credit all came from what you could jump off or, you know, how gnarly you could get. That was your, that was your credit school. And Mm. uh, that was what we, that was what we did. And yeah, I just started to, at that point, I started to look to all the international mountain bike magazines and like websites were just kind of coming about. And I guess I started getting influenced that way Mm. um and that kind of transitioned into snow quite nicely because it was the same thing it was about getting out in the mountains with your friends and enjoying what was around you and so did you get shots published first from biking or snowboarding i think no very good question (laughs) it was definitely mountain biking Yeah. yeah yeah so i started getting shots published in magazines when i was maybe 14 15 something like that and as a kid, that was a pretty cool feeling. I mm. kind of remember being at school and you could be at school and bust out a magazine and show a photo that you had taken and that was that was pretty rad. Once again, it was kind of, uh, I don't know, it was a cool way to kind of set your place in, in, in what you did and I just fell in love with it and became so obsessed um, with cameras that every day after school I'd be out shooting every weekend. Um, But yeah, it was mountain biking first and then snowboarding probably, I don't know, when I was 16 or 17, something like that. Right. Yeah. Cool. And um, because I started seeing a lot of your shots in, I guess, the mid-2000s in New Zealand Snowboarder and Manual. Yeah, yeah. Um, Before we, can we talk about um, what goes into getting a magazine quality shot? Yeah, we uh, said, especially in this day and age of phone cameras, when we think everything we're taking is cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the risk of sounding like a couple of old bastards sitting in a room talking shit about how it used to Which be, which is exactly what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man, so much goes into getting a magazine quality snowboard shot, and I really do not think that the general public would would really understand what goes into it. You pick up a magazine, you see a bluebird powder day and a person flying through the sky with the perfect grab on the perfect angle, and you're like, ah, oh, they just they just get paid to go out and do that, and it's that easy. But the reality is it takes so many stars to align for that to happen. Um, you know, you've got to, basically you've got to be shooting a unique feature, so you're always looking for something original to photograph to end up in a magazine. Uh, you've got to have good snow, good weather, your rider's got to be on point, like whatever they're doing has to be good enough to be in a mag. Um, and then from a photography perspective, you've got to have a unique angle, you've got to have good light, good composition. 
all of that has to come together to get that one frame. And mm. back in the day, that was incredibly prestigious to get a get a shot in a magazine. Like mm. we all couldn't wait for the next issue of a magazine to come out yeah. and you'd, you'd peel open those pages you'd smell them i can remember smelling yeah. them and to get your shot there or if you were the snowboarder in the shot in the magazine yeah that was pretty prestigious mm. um, especially the cover like denny bevan talked about that in his episode a little bit about how he was that was the thing to get and that sort of eluded him and yeah, yeah. you know the cover shot was definitely one to put on your CV if you could achieve it, for sure. Mm. But what's funny about covers is quite often they're not, uh, well, in some photographers' opinions, for example, potentially not the best shot ends up on the cover, but the nice clean shot that the magazine copy can fit in on that's going to sell that magazine ends up on the cover. But mm. absolutely, it's um, it's something to tick off, for mm. sure. So is there a couple of images that you've taken that sort of stand out as highlights with that fit the criteria you talked about Ooh, another loaded question um <laughs> honestly man when when you asked if i wanted to come on the show i i pulled out some hard drives from 15 years ago and went deep into the archives and it brought back so many incredibly incredible memories but i think there's just too many too many of them to isolate down into one i might actually have to I might have to come back to you on that one. Okay, <laughs> we, we might have to put that in our stock enders then. Proud, Absolutely. Photo or some shit. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so I think about that time I'm talking about, which is mid-2000s, um, it seemed that you were uh, running around in Utah with the Deros or yeah. Dero affiliates quite a bit. Absolutely, yeah. So that was kind of my weird way of going to university was finish up Mount Aspiring College, jump on a, a plane and go to Utah with the Deros. What could possibly go wrong? Mm, so how, <laughs> who put that idea in your head or was that just, did, did you know all those dudes beforehand? Or Yeah, so in the kind of last couple of years in school in, in Wanaka, I started to become good friends with um, Jesse Wilkinson and Tim Watson and John Waddell and Louis Puraka and all those sorts of boys and that was kind of my introduction to photographing snowboarding properly. Like I dabbled a little bit in the years before that, but yeah, I got to know those guys and honestly, man, it was just partying, drinking, snowboarding, rinse and repeat. And <laughs> it was bliss. It was simple. It was amazing. And those were kind of, you know, the founda foundational years of our lives, I guess. Mm, the Dero lifestyle. Yeah. So were yeah. you in on the scams? That uh, we've been privy to. Yes, I definitely um, was amongst that, for sure. It was, I don't know, a couple of, well, what was there? Just a bunch of broke-ass New Zealand snowboarders going overseas trying to do it on as little as possible. So some debaucherous shit definitely happened, and things <laughs> were pushed as far as they could. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was your most extravagant Walmart 90-day money back guarantee purchase oh man i just remember taking back a lot of the stuff from our kitchen and you know it was completely flogged everything that was taken back there had been very clearly used and trying to get that shit across the line and i mean looking back at it now i don't know what the fuck we thought we were up to but we were kids and we we're mm. out there doing it and that's what being a kid's about you know <laughs> Living off the dollar menu. And that's it, that's it. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of Dero, um, you were there when they had the Dero Uninvitational Rail Jam. Yeah. 
Yeah. We talk about that for a minute. Yeah. I mean, my memory's hazy from that day, as you'd expect, but there was lots of 40s, a little bit of snowboarding in between. Oh, actually, I ate shit that day and I was just photographing. I I remember. Yeah. (laughs) That was going to be my next question. (laughs) Yeah. God, I got given shit about that. So I was photographing a rail and I think I had. Luckily, I had this Nikon F5, which for any camera geeks out there is this like metal-bodied film camera. It's built like a brick shit house. Anyway, I fell over on the stairs. I think mm. drunk, icy, smashed the camera into the ground, and it survived, and the film survived. So happy days there. But yeah, definitely just cooking it as a photographer. Mm. So I think it's got success in there, like Rob or someone's like, haha, wallow or some shit. Mm. <laughs> Uh, no, what are you bringing up Wallow for, mate? Mm. <laughs> well, speaking of well, seeing as we brought it up, can we talk about <laughs> how the name Wallow came about? The name Wallow, so, shit, that does go back to Utah, and that has stuck with me to this day. So thank you, Blair Finlay and Logan Holt, if you ever hear this. <laughs> I am still called Wallow by all the old snowboard bros, but... I mean, you might have to ask them why I was actually called that, but I think it's potentially to do with the fact that, you know, I was carrying a bit of weight on me. I wasn't the, the slimmest gym out there. I like my beers and I like to sit behind my camera. And I think I just used to wallow around in the snow, you know. I'd be half an hour behind on a boot pack carrying my <laughs> camera gear. And I was new. I was pretty new to that kind of crew and that scene. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how it came about. But, yeah, it ended up sticking and part of my snowboard identity i guess yeah (laughs) and a writer i really want to talk about over this time is uh tim watson who was um sort of came in jumped off some shit and then fucked off yeah timmy boy ah man tim um so how did how did tim get into the picture see tim kind of became part of that crew with jesse and uh chris blinkhorn and john waddell who was trash films and they all kind of hung out together but yeah tim was from a skating background he's from wellington he'd come down here and do seasons and um i really enjoyed photographing tim he was such a purist such an artist you know like he came from skating and he had that kind of street skate culture that he brought to snowboarding and he was a perfectionist in his snowboarding and he was really creative and he also loved photography and i can remember in the early days like he really respected photography and respected what we did Mm. which was amazing to work with him and yeah he worked hard and like looking back at shots from those years i've forgotten just how how many amazing kind of rail shots we've gotten mm. places we went um yeah and then yeah i don't know i don't know where tim is now i kind of kept in touch with him for a while after snowboarding but i think he's in one of those eclectic dudes that sort of would just almost like tom penny just disappear and then pop up and rip something and then disappear and yeah absolutely pop up and rip something else and because he what, he left snowboarding to go sponsored skateboarding or something for a bit. Mm. He's definitely very talented on a skateboard. But yeah, I'm not sure where he, where he ended up. But mm. Tim, come back to snowboarding one day. That'd be cool. Yeah, because awesome. was he a total rail bandit or was that just the part that was showcased with him? Uh, he could totally ride park and he could jump. But I think he just really liked the creative side of street. And that's, mm. he did a lot of that. Yeah. 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 Is there any um, rail features that stick out with Tim? You've seen, you're like, holy fuck, I just can't believe that just happened. Or... Mm. Shit, you're testing me now. <laughs> well, once again, there's just so many good... There's nothing in particular that stands out. Um, 
he's just super dialed on all those rail tracks, mm. really clean. Um, mm. but yeah. There is one I wanted to ask you about, mm. which uh, blew my mind to find out it was Switch. Was that uh, Snow yeah. Park Rail? Yeah, mate, your memory's better than mine. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Snow Park Bridge Switch 50 to drop off the side. So Tim had eyed that up for a while, and I thought it was a pretty cool creative line, and I think we waited for... I don't know, a few weeks to get the timing right where we could shoot sunset and then we chucked up some flashes and he linked it all together and we got the shot and um, he was really good like that. He'd think about something that he'd want to kind of execute for for a long time and then we'd line it all up and he'd knock it off. And actually now that you talk about it, uh, Tim doing a back one down the snow stairs at um, Snow Park at oh, night. Oh yeah, Hufferad. Hufferad, yeah, yeah, that shot. I don't know, it, it was, once again, it was this kind of, it was quite cool because it had a bit of skate influence. These There were these gigantic kind of steps that were actually cut for, like, the quarter pipe jam for punters to sit on and watch it. And Tim was up there snowboarding. He's like, oh, I'd be sick to jump over those. Mm. And then we lined it all up to happen at night. And, um, yeah, it was super fast, big lofty back 180 over it. And um, real styly. He's in a red jumper. And I think he had some, like, maybe even rainbow gloves on or some shit but that was just tim to a key like tim to a t like perfectionist got up there did what he needed to do and we got the shot right yeah it was cool so i remember seeing um jesse wilkinson and um ferret hit that in one of the dero videos as well yeah right right so, yeah but yeah that backside one that's mm. fucking mm. yeah I, I i can't believe i forgot about that that was <laughs> fucking sick too yeah it was rad for sure Rad. And while we're talking about snow park, which was such a, an instrumental part of New Zealand snowboarding, mm. like you were involved quite a bit, or you, you shot up there quite a bit? Yeah, yeah, snow park was incredible, I think. Um, well, we were all lucky to be mm. a part of that in some way, shape and form. I think just over the sort of five years that it was, was actually... Oh, sorry. How long was snow park there for? Ten. Ten. Yeah, o- o- two to... Cool. So call it 10 years. The amount of progression that we saw in that time was just, it was unfathomable. Obviously, Mm. the sport was at this place where progression could happen. So every single year, both with what the snow park would build up there and then what the riders were doing, um, both sort of domestically in Australasia and then all the pros that were coming down, every year was incredible. There was always Mm. something rad going on up there. And as a young kid in your late teens, early 20s with a camera who has that on their doorstep. Yeah, it was incredible. And the other thing, Snow Park too, was so helpful uh, to setting up shots. Like, I could talk to them. I got to know Sam Lee. Well, Sam's another OG Wanaka kid too, but if you had an idea for a shot, if it was after hours, before hours, whether it was Sam or Matt White or Frank Wells, any of the groomers, they would they'd listen to you. And it was once again at a time where photography was prestigious. Mm. So you could set up really unique features and that they'd go to all of that effort to get a beautiful shot. You know, mm. It was pretty cool. And so did you have some features that um, you went to with them? Yeah, well, there was all sorts of shit that would happen through that time. I think more often than not, it would have been riders suggesting things to be built, whether it was big rails or jumps or things like the the jib on the bridge or Will Jay's drop off the bridge or we built mm. jumps in the, um, the car park behind Snow Park as well. Yeah. All those sorts of things happened. And then just, yeah, they were always open to you shooting early or late and, and searching for the right light. I mean, we did mm. all sorts of shit around the park itself, all sorts of jibs. Um, 
but yeah, it was a it was a playground. Yeah, it was so sick. And so, what was your first impression when you went around the corner for your first time and seen Snow Park? Mm. Oh man, like I said, as a little kid, it was just it was heaven. Yeah. Um, all of this amazing terrain in one little pocket that you could lap really quickly with you mm. and your mates. Yeah, pretty hard to put into words, to be yeah. honest. And then with the restaurant there and the apartments and. Yeah, hats off to Sam Lee. He had some serious vision to be thinking about doing that and then doing that. Mm. Uh, it was phenomenal. Like, I really <clears throat> think that place was 10 years ahead of its time, eh? Plus. Like, yeah. Easy. Actually, we've, we've talked about making a documentary on Snow Park. Um, oh, yeah. It's been bandied around quite a bit between Sam Lee and Rebecca Hollis and... And hopefully one day we could document all of that history mm. and maybe maybe even bring it, spark the chair back up just for once, just for the documentary, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't think the chair's there anymore. Oh, shit, is it gone? Yeah, right, I was well, speaking to be the program guys, and I think they do, do a bunch of car stuff there now. Yeah, no, you did yeah. right. They do do car stuff there. Well, maybe we can sling up the hill on a car or something. <laughs> I don't know. Even better, I'd bring back Kim Vlogs fucking Subi. Yeah, I won't forget that day that we were filming... MDTV, which we'll talk about in a bit. Pan to the left, there's Ken Block's Subaru jumping down the triple line. You're like, am I actually <laughs> seeing this? What's going on here? But that was Snow Park. Yeah. And, and New Zealand must have been one of the only countries in the world that you could get away with that shit at that period in time. You know, Because mm, the resort's still open. Mm. I mean, then that footage, holy shit. Yeah, it was yeah. loose. <laughs> it was definitely loose. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he just reminded me of Danny Cass at Cadrona and I think it was 09 we tried to drive his fucking van up McDougal's. <laughs> ah, I do have a vague memory of hearing about that. Oh, you got so much. <laughs> like, people were scared around and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but that was it. That was the time in snowboard history, man. And yeah. Shit just happened and it was documented and it was, it was rad. Mm. And you mentioned yeah. before Will jumping off the bridge, which... Uh, he is tired of talking about them. Yeah, yeah. But were you there that day as well? Not for the bridge jump, but I was there for when Rolly did the jam on the... That was a different day, I think. Once right. again, my memory doesn't serve me that straight. But I didn't shoot Will jumping off the bridge. I shot Rolly doing the pole jam and Steph doing the pole jam on the bridge oh, right. support. So it was another day. I think we actually shot it twice as well to get the light right. Um, but yeah, that was pretty gnarly. Big, mm. big old sled toe in from memory and then pinging up the up the pole and that shot in particular there's just the last light rays coming in and Roldy manages to get high enough to be sitting in it yeah it's pretty sick. so i remember like seeing that shot when it was published being like holy fuck like look like you know it looks like a pivot to fakie yeah yeah totally. like, how the fuck yeah. and it's just like how do you get out of that <laughs> you know yeah it was ballsy uh, for sure and dutchy steph zestraten was sliding up that pole pretty high too mm. um i think yeah, I don't think his shots got published, but he was definitely shredding that day. Mm. It's cool. Uh, we'll take it back a little bit there, Tim. Um, who were the first riders that you shot with? Um, yeah, the first riders I can remember shooting with properly were... You know, Jesse, Jesse Wilkinson stands out as one of mm. those guys. As I said, it was in those kind of last years of school and I met Jesse actually lived across the road from my parents and Jesse had so much talent he was super stylish like an an incredibly good snowboarder whether it was jumping or jibbing um 
he could kind of do it all. And once again, he sort of understood photography and loved photography and set himself such high standards. And yeah, so much talent that never really, um, in my opinion, Jesse's talent never really got that recognised. He he did like to rub a few people up, you know. Yeah, he was yeah. a he was a young snowboarder man, but holy shit, he was talented. And yeah, the early days of photography, I owe so much to Jesse. Like some of the first shots we got together, you know, I'm still really proud of today. And the, the so he pretty much was your first published snowboard shot. Yeah, actually, I think my very first published snowboard shot was a double page spread in New Zealand snowboarder and it was Jesse jumping off the water tanks in Wanaka when there was a snowfall in town and I think I took this photo on like a 2 megapixel point and shoot digital camera like digital cameras that only just come out and yeah, I'm pretty sure that was my first ever snowboard shot. Friend. Yeah, it was cool. Oh, sick. And um, so you're saying he was this Unsung talent. Yeah, um, I mean, if so, you were... so, what's some of the more hectic things you've seen Jesse knock off? <sighs> Fuck, Jesse would just. I mean, he was into like earing huge ears to flat. He just had knees that could take anything. The amount of bomb drops and pole like um, ollies over poles to flat and tranny finders and and jibbing. He was incredible too. Like he could get through any kinks that you'd throw at him. And then jumping, he was super solid as well. Mm. Like I remember in. Uh, Utah, where we're shooting these massive cliffs, and I think it was with Coyer, and Coyer did a switchback, I think it was a switchback five off the Heber cliffs or something, and Jesse came along and did a cab five, and he was kind of, I think it was a cab five, but anyway, he was this kind of, he wasn't Jake Coyer, he was a sort of more unknown rider, but mm. super styly and could still do everything from backcountry to street and park and in between. Um, mm. Very talented guy. Another rider, I think, was sort of fairly uh, unsung as well was uh, Chris Blinkhorn absolutely Blinky yeah so Blinky was a big part of those years as well and I mean the thing that impressed me about Chris Blinkhorn was his pop anyone who knew um, Blinky knew how high this guy could go when he was riding transition and half pipe or whether he was riding street he could absolutely send it he had an epic method on him as well Mm. Um, once again he was always down to get the shot and yeah, he sent it. He knew how to go big, and that was always super fun to photograph. And just the nicest human being too, like yeah. absolute lad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, <clears throat> there is uh, another writer I wanted to ask about. Uh, was Dan Fountain? Dan was, Fountain. Well, is, he's probably a bit older than you guys. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we talked about it off mic. Like he was your first feature or something. Yeah. Yeah. So Dan was the first ever interview that I photographed. So back in the day, it was a. It was a big deal to get an interview spread in a magazine, you know, each Mm. issue that came out, one writer would get six to eight pages in a magazine, and my first full feature that I shot was with Dan, and that was in Utah, so that that was pretty cool. Um, I didn't really know at the time, know him at the time, I got thrown in to shoot this article with him. So how did that happen if you didn't know him? Through NZ Snowboarder magazine, who I used to do a lot with, so I think Phil Erickson was like, they want to do an interview on um, Dan Fountain, can you go photograph it, I was in Utah, so I just ended up hanging out with uh, Dan and Logan for, I don't know, it was a few weeks, running around building jumps, um, Mm. and watching Dan do his thing, and getting to document it, which was pretty cool. Mm. And so I remember there was a half cab bomb drop that was pretty, it got my attention. Yeah, you know. As a was, magazine reader. It was definitely a unique photo at the time. Mm. It was in Park City and some old derelict buildings. And yeah, um, Dan just did what Dan does, which is stomp the shit out of it. He's, yeah. a, um, he's a stocky, 
solid rider to watch snowboard yeah and so as a photographer what would be the more preferable thing a cover shot or an interview spread Ooh, i'd have to say the cover just for the, the glory mate yeah. um that's full glory just that's mm. ego speaking a good interview with eight amazing images is still a good testament to a good photographer mm. too so would that give you more of a platform to showcase your versatility as a photographer or something yeah, I mean, you could definitely show your diversity and how you can shoot, for sure, mm. through it through a magazine spread versus a cover. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's a couple more riders I wanted to ask you about. You, you shot with, um, well, we talked about the Deros, but uh, Nick Hine and Nick Brown a bunch? Yeah, I, I shot with Heiner a bit. I did a trip to Japan with Heiner and definitely had some rad times with him hanging out there, shooting pillows and like one morning we went and shot him doing a one footer off a slide in a playground with some japanese kids you know shit like that um but heine was super fun to shoot with because he had a different approach to snowboarding again you know Mm. he had quite technical tricks switch tricks one foot tricks um and he was always looking looking for it and so much stoke and i think Mm. heine still has that same stoke today which is super rad and yeah browner definitely ended up on a few shoots with him which was cool too Mm. um there was one shoot up we're up treble cone and they'd built this cheese wedge booter which had the classic tc background they're filming with reason films but Mm. i just tagged along for that day and and shot some stills of it and actually that there was one photo there that that went pretty gangbusters because it was kind of it's this commercial looking image which is quite clean but um brown is doing you know a pretty large year off this booter with a big backdrop and actually after doing the rounds and snowboard worlds ended up as um billboards for air new zealand across australasia which is pretty cool Brand. is that a good and is that a good paycheck for a photographer getting something like that yeah totally yeah so yeah. there's i mean and in snowboard photography there's not much money to be made it's definitely done for the love um mm. shooting for magazines back in the day you'd get what was it 130 bucks for a double page spread or something you know it wouldn't even cover your gas money but it it was your stomping grounds and your proving grounds and we learned to photograph basically Mm. Uh, but the commercial stuff on top of that if you were shooting an ad for a sponsor would pay a bit more and then yeah if you could use that image for other commercial reasons Mm. um so how would that come about so say with the ad you're saying ad for a sponsor and assuming snowboard brand sponsor yep so say a sponsor, do they approach you like, hey, look, we've got the Will J, for example. We want to get an ad for him. Yeah. Can you do it? Yep. And or yeah. So it used to happen in one of two ways. I'd either come to you at the end of the season and be like, "What shots have you got of this rider?" And then they'd kind of design their ads around it, yep. or they'd say, "Can you go out and shoot this shoot this rider?" And you get commissioned that way. Um, yeah, that was basically the two ways it played out. But more often than not with a lot of the writers so a lot of these guys that we were shooting with in the early days are at the start of their careers they've got some sponsors on board and they want some images to give to their sponsors to mm. put them on the map help brands out and we'd just go out and shoot shit and send it their way and then sometimes it would end up as an ad you know yeah right. Um, it was a better paycheck for photographers to get an ad than get a magazine editorial yeah. but more prestige in magazine editorial than having an ad right yeah oh cool and well we mentioned them so we'll bring him up again will jay will jay the king yeah the absolute king so will and i reckon he would be my one of my favorite if not my favorite snowboarder to photograph i've certainly got some phenomenal memories from being in the mountains with him i mean who he is as a person and then how he snowboards is just an absolute pleasure 
Mm. He is a photographer's dream. He kind of, he works with you really closely. He understands what you needs and then he just makes it happen. Mm. And I've always been impressed at how we can look at terrain and pick a line that nobody else sees and make something add up. I'm going to pop off this lip and I'm going to land there and you're like, how are you going to do that? But it's Will J, he's a cat. Yeah. And he does it with so much style and so much flow. And honestly, man, yeah, like I say, some of my best memories being in the hills with him. Yeah, I mean, that guy's kind of like production on the spot, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, uh, he's a dream man. Like, he, he's professional, he knows how to get shit done. He's a professional mm. snowboarder who photographed and filmed. And yeah, it was um, some some very cool years hanging out with mm. Will doing that. I was talking about Will... Um, and I was lucky enough to witness some of the stuff go down. Um, 07 season mm. was notoriously dry snow season till the end. Yeah. And I started seeing you guys popping up when yeah. we were packing down the resort. <laughs> and um, probably one of the raddest post seasons, certainly some of the best days snowboarding I've had. Oh, absolutely. And, um, yeah. But there was a huge table that Melville built that I was hoping you might be able to talk about a bit. Yeah, for sure. So. As you said, 2007, the mountain closed, and then we got three weeks of spring snow basically happened. Every couple of days, it seemed like there was a top-up. And we were lucky enough at the time that John Melville, um, legendary groomer up Cardis, was wanting to push some snow around and build some features. So, yeah, up on Skyline, he built this. It was both a hip and a table. I don't know how big it was, but this thing was a big old tombstone that sat right on the um, ridge of Skyline. So I remember overhearing someone be like, that's 90 feet, yeah. not ni- 90 feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was an absolute behemoth. And, yeah, over a couple of weeks there, there was like, I don't know, three or four sessions on it, mm. and people kind of unlocked what could be done and... Yeah, Will J did what Will J does, which is go goes huge, absolutely mm. massive. <laughs> Remember when he took that? He did the backside seven. He was hitting the hippo part of it, backside seven, right to the end, and caught the last foot of transition. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I was standing beside Abby, and Abby told him off. She's like, "Don't ever, ever scare me like that again." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that thing was huge. That was mm. definitely the talk of the town, but. Yeah, just that two-week period. I think Melville even pushed up a bunch of lips for us around the resort and other areas too that you usually couldn't get to ride. He was like, take the cat in. I'm just going to put a lip there so you guys can mm. land down there. And we just had so much good snow. It's definitely baked in my in my membrane, mm. you know. It was amazing. So maybe that was wicked. Like, we fired up the, the chairlift that day. That was the last day of the slow captain's chair yeah. before yeah. it got replaced and fired it up on, what, 30 centimetres of... Fresh powder. Yeah. I remember seeing you guys out there too. I'm like, rad, they're getting it as well. Yeah. Probably the best day I've ever had in New Zealand snowboarding for sure. Absolutely, man. And and we're lucky, if going through my archives here, you get a 2007 New Zealand folder from my photographs and it's just stacked and it just reflects how Mm. much good snow and how much time we had up Mm. the mountain at the end of the season. Mm. So I remember like with even, I remember there was one day where it was Marcus Worley, Will Mm. and Karen. Yes. Was there? Yep. And they were using the car. They were jibbing the clock tower. This is like a couple of years before Jossie went fucking skyrocketed on it. And they were using the car to drag Will across the car park to fucking... Uh, so we didn't know that they were doing that. We were sitting there having smoker. And then fucking Whirly just screams past in this car like five foot away from us. Like, holy shit. <laughs> fucking crazy bastard. 
And then, and then we weren't expecting a snowboarder to be on a rope behind, and then Will's like fucking wall riding that clock tower and shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh man, it, it was like once again just complete playground. You got the mountain to yourself when it's closed with lots of snow. Mm. You do everything that you've always dreamed of doing. Yeah. And what does that make for unique photos as well? So yeah. it was fucking cool. It was really cool. Yeah. In fact, there is one picture I wanted to ask. Is there? It was. I think it was the opening shot in the article. Is Will on the um, archway? Ah, uh, yeah, on the archway. sliding down Legoland. Yeah, yeah. So he dreamed that up, and I was like, "Shit, that's that's ambitious, bro." Because like, <laughs> one of those ones where I think I was seeing the shot and be like, "Whoa!" Yeah. But then she thought about the nuts and bolts. It's like he climbed a ladder. How the fuck did he put his bindings on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. No, it was definitely a bit of a sketchy setup, and that that ladder was tall too. Yeah, um, he just made it work on his hillside edge on the top of the ladder, just one foot in at a time, as as Will J does. Mm. Um, but yeah, it could have gone pretty pear shaped. But yeah. it's a pretty iconic image, actually. It was pretty. Um, I was I remember being stoked on it for fucking sure. Fucking crazy. Yeah. I just remember like. Yeah, and I, I can't believe, it. like, he came on, I was like, fuck, I should have asked him about that. Like, <laughs> like the, the, yeah, nuts and bolts are trying to get that in. It's, yeah. it's a classic, it's like Nick, Nick Johnson says, like the classic urban urban jib story where the drop-ins are gnarlier than the feature. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that one's definitely testament to that, mm. sure. So, obviously, you had a bit of a relationship with the magazine, so I was hoping we could talk mm. about Manual for a bit. Manual Magazine. Absolutely, yes. we can. Mate, I have so much respect for the guys from Manual Magazine. David Reed, I had a lot to do with him when I was photographing for them. So I got introduced to them to uh, from their sort of brother magazine, which was Spoke Magazine, a mountain bike mag. But Manual and Spoke run in the same vein. They're incredibly artistic, great art direction. Their photography is very considered, along with the editorial and... I think it's just amazing to withhold those sorts of editorial standards mm. within snowboarding and skateboarding, you know, and they had their they had their place in the market that was different. You either liked mm. manual or you didn't like manual, you know. Mm. <laughs> manual was where the art and the soul was at and it was yeah. raw and it was real and yeah, I think it's um I mean I loved it. It's everything I loved, like music, skateboarding, snowboarding. Yeah. Fuck yes. Yeah. yeah, it's such a shame that um you know, I think there were some pretty tough times in the magazine industry as the value of print. People mm. stopped buying magazines and digital came in and people people in the scene fucking love manual and that's what counts, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So it was more based around the core than the... Um, Absolutely. I don't remember seeing it in the supermarket or anything like that. Nah, but, nah. It was, you know. it was a core magazine um, for sure, but with the highest standards, man. Like, they mm. wouldn't let shit slip. They wouldn't take photos that weren't in their vein and i i respect that you know they held their brand so closely to them i think the thing i thought was really cool about manual was some of the snowboard shots they published weren't what you'd consider hammers or bangers like well bangers weren't like gnarly hammers Mm. like they would publish a quirky shot of a shifty or something off a bump yep and and as as a um consumer of snowboard media that was that was an eye opener for me because I'm not capable of doing the big death defying shit. It's like, oh, me and my friends can go out and just take pictures of shifties off bumps too. Rad, totally, you know? and, bro. You know? And you see, that really appealed to me on the other end as a photographer because 
whilst I appreciated the sport of snowboarding and, and I shot it, I mean, for me, it was just as much about the photography and that's what Manuel would recognize. Mm. Was it unique composition, unique placement, like you say, shifty off a bump, but it shot well and mm. beautiful light in a unique place well then people want to see it and so was it were they sort of likely to give you some more artistic freedoms as a photographer absolutely man like manual will take your blurry shot that you've um thought up in your mind a slow shutter shot of a person crossing a mud puddle or whatever you know Mm. i think i shot one of blinky being towed behind a old tahoe like an old an old vehicle in tahoe sorry across a puddle on a tow rope and it was blurry and it was black and white it was it was night it was art you know Mm. and that's what they lapped up and that was really cool to have an outlet for that rad Mm. and um so the brains behind manual was that um who who was that yeah so i had a bit to do with david and and j mac both absolute legends in their own right Mm. um and yeah, those guys were the heart and soul and vision of, of that magazine on the snowboard side of things. Mm. Obviously, there's a skateboard side of things too. Because um, they were photographers too, right, David and Yeah. Jan. So yeah. there was never a point where you were considered this threatening competition or anything, or were they more welcoming uh, with... No, nah, nah, not at all. So the way kind of magazine culture worked back there, if you were a snowboard photographer that was out there shooting snowboarding, you were welcomed. You know, yeah. the more contributors, the better to make good content. And, the, you know, I certainly owe a lot to manual magazine for helping me out in the early days i was just a young fucking grom who yeah you know was just keen to shoot and didn't really have an idea of how it worked and they'd take your work so mm. and cool. did you go along say well j-mac shot a lot of snow did you go along on shoots with him to learn the ropes or were you more just picking it up as you went along no i was just doing my own thing so that was the funny thing in snowboard photography i guess in those days it was quite competitive in some ways too so you'd never end up with two photographers on one shoot because you're there to get your your shot you know Mm. uh i guess it's a bit different now but um yeah i'd I'd more say that definitely david and j mac mentored me and helped me out for sure Mm. cool and the other magazine we need to talk about that I've seen a lot of your work in was none other than New Zealand Snowboarder. Yeah, New Zealand That's Snowboarder. the original. Absolutely. So Phil Erickson there, once again, massive props to him. I mean, for how long he stayed in that magazine and kept mm. that bad boy going, just take my hats off, hat mm-hmm. off to him, you Shit. know? That was our Bible as a grommet. Absolutely. You know, like, like, when I had an idea of when it was going to come out, I'd be walking past the dairy every couple of days, like, <laughs> peeking in, you know? Yeah, yeah totally, bro. Totally. Yeah. Now, that was an amazing outlet for work as well. Mm. Um, like I said, I had my first interview with Dan um, Fountain in there, and then Phil would just take heaps of heaps of the content mm. that we were creating, and it was, it was cool. It, it, it um, further motivated us to get out there and keep shooting. Mm. So, do we... How different was it to shoot for New Zealand Snowboarder compared to someone like Manuel? Yeah, well, I guess they're completely different magazines, you know. Mm. Um, if you're being commissioned to shoot for either or, you're shooting in a slightly different style. Um, mm. I guess if you to compare the two, Manuel's a little bit more artistic. Uh, New Zealand Snowboarder's probably the one that appeals to the masses a little bit more. Mm. So um, when I think New Zealand Snowboarder, I think clean, crispy, beautiful sharp images you know mm. like your your bluebird powder day and manual yeah. i think of the stuff that's a little bit more artistic more mm. contrast and so they more, sort of complemented each other as opposed to yeah competition for sure and that was yeah. pretty cool to think back actually at that time that there was two magazines in the new zealand market you know yeah it's so small and these yeah. guys were producing regular images that were packed yeah so it's pretty regular sort of um 
what am I trying to say? Issues. Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah. do, do you um, do any of the trips away with New Zealand snowboarder to shoot or anything like that? So, when I was photographing for them, it was never really commissioned. They would maybe supply some like gas money or trip money if we were doing an article or something like mm. that. But nah, they. So basically, the way those mags worked was J Mac was in house, Phil Erickson was in house, and if it was a if it was a shoot for either of those magazines and like a featured article, they'd go because they're the in house staff, which right. totally makes sense. Sweet, and you guys were just contributors, or absolutely, yeah. should, shouldn't say just, but you no, guys no, were, we're just contributors. Yeah, yeah, totally, we're just free agents. Then, as you say, it was the Bible back in the day. Yeah. Um, those magazines meant so much to so many kids, you know, it was what you looked up to. And mm. um, it was a pretty important part of life back then before social media mm. and, and too many websites. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, those magazines were almost like the gatekeeper of standards too. Like, yeah, you sort of open up, right, this is the standard right here, right now. Yeah. And, yeah. And then you know, I guess maybe in this day and age with social media, there isn't a gatekeeper and yeah what are people looking at for inspiration and totally bro no as we were talking about earlier i think it uh, magazines gave photography a place to shine and Mm. it was in a time that photography was a rare medium there wasn't every tom dick and harry out there taking photos on their iphone or on their digital camera like Mm. It was rare to get a beautiful shot and to see it from that perspective. And magazines did keep the standard high. Mm. I mean, I've shot hundreds of shots that have never made print, which Mm. are still all great images. But it was cutthroat and Mm. for good reason. And that's what made it so special to get your shot in there. And I think it would be really nice to see that kind of standard come back to media in this day and age. You know, we just Mm. consume so much of it now that it doesn't have that same quality yeah like i wonder if um if the consumer in this day and age would be able to wait two months for an issue of you know remember say new zealand snowboarder would wait two months for an issue yeah you know and it's like fuck i wonder if people are actually capable of that now because we're so <laughs> used to just feed nah. feed 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 you know nah, we wouldn't and, bro we wouldn't i don't yeah. think we could handle it um <laughs> i mean pros and cons right i was live streaming natural selection the other day yeah. watching all the most incredible angles of the shit going down live and i was like oh we're so lucky to have this yeah but would it be better if we saw it in a magazine two months down the line yeah yeah or a full-length doco or whatever yeah yeah it's a that's a, I, I, I guess it's like a give and a take because mm. sort of talking about that with want to get bigger with someone the other day i was like yeah okay it's not the small little wee mountain town but now now i can st- sustain a year-round job that's totally. the give that's the take and yep absolutely yeah. well um so we've talked a bit about magazines and stuff inevitably the digital world caught up yeah and uh, if i remember rightly you had one of the first new zealand snowboard digital sites yeah i did indeed and i'd almost completely forgotten about it until you asked me about it tony but yeah i started a website called nzboard.com and that just came from being passionate about building websites as a kid and and taking photos and it was kind of an outlet for it and you know i thought the idea of having forums and articles and stuff was cool so i kind of bandied that around not for too long because I met Rebecca Hollis, who had just started nzsnowboard.com at the time. And um, 
yeah, we just talked about what he was up to. He had a bit more commercial horsepower behind him. And I kind of just made the decision to stick to photography and video and kind of team up with Rebet. And over the years following, we did lots of uh, sort of snowboard video content. And we dropped nzboard.com and all the focus went into nzsnowboard.com. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was definitely the early days of uh, snowboard websites and just kind of websites in general. I mean, they're mm-hmm. out there, but there wasn't truckloads of them. Because, mm, well, so NewZealandSnowboard.com was like a, like, can you describe like, what? Yeah, NZSnowboard.com. I mean, yeah. it was the equivalent, I guess, of a, a digital magazine. Um, scratching my head on the early days of what it looked like, but articles would get posted up with photos. And then when we started doing video content, we'd drop um, daily videos and that sort of thing. And then, yeah, just digital content. It was... The magazine in digital form, basically. Yeah. So I guess as we talk about it now, was that the start of a slippery slope? Yes. Yeah. Nice. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, because when did he start that? It must have been 210 or something around there. Or late 2000s anyway. Yeah, or even longer. And, yeah. And so, so they had the foresight to see yeah. that this is the way things are going. Yeah, and Rebet was a visionary. You know, mm. that guy was so far ahead of his time and he had such a strong business now, some kind of acumen and drive as well i think mm. the thing about rabette was he got shit done like yeah he wasn't a guy that talked about an idea and didn't do it he would execute on it which was mm. super cool um, yeah because he sort of moved on to what frontside media and then now he's doing all this yeah so i mean i couldn't tell you his latest um yeah escapades but rabette's been incredibly successful in, in all sorts of areas of business but it started mm. in snowboarding and then it went to nzsnowboard.com and then he kind of branched out outside of that. But, mm. um, yeah, those were the early days of digital snowboard media. Mm. Cool. So a lot of people now would know you more as a filmmaker than a still photographer. Mm. Um, how did the transition into filmmaking come about? Yeah, so the first time, well, my very first sort of decent film project was a feature-length mountain bike film. And I guess it was probably around, like, 2000 and six or something like that but um essentially i love photography but i saw there was a gap in mountain bike films for something that was a little bit more artistic and a little bit more thoughtful a lot of the videos at the time were pretty gung-ho rock like just bogans on bikes and i wanted something with a bit more art and i was quite inspired by skate and snow culture and that sort of thing so we made this mountain bike film and um yeah made on zero budget traveled new zealand produced a feature-length film and actually went pretty well we distributed it globally mm. and it, it like planted the seed of ah oh, maybe we can maybe we can video mm. instead of take photos because <laughs> i'm guessing you'd been around filmers the whole time as a snowboard photographer so yeah yep it wasn't too much of a unbelievable leap no no not at all the thing that scared me about filming in the first place was the editing (laughs) it's it's a huge part of the job that i didn't really uh have much passion for at the start but basically the transition into snowboard filming happened because i had met rebet and i'm not gonna lie i was struggling to make any money photographing it was fucking hard to put enough gas in your car to get up the hill to shoot photos but i was really passionate about it but i was like oh man how can I do this without having three different other jobs? You know, how does this mm. add up? And I've been into filming and I kind of saw websites popping up and then Rebet and I just started talking about making a same-day turnaround online video snowboard show. And at the time, I don't think anyone in the world was doing it. It was kind of a revolutionary idea that 
you could go out there with a camera, shoot, edit, upload by 7pm that night, I think we'd set our deadlines or something Jesus like Christ, that. Jesus quite a lot to... Can you walk us through yeah. how much work that is? Yeah, so I mean, as a young Grom with a whole shitload of energy, it was um, it was doable, but I kind of look at it now and it's madness, especially shooting in the mountains. But uh, the first season we did this show called MDTV, Mountain Dew Television, and uh, yeah, we'd, we'd kind of come up with an idea for an episode, um, think about it for a while, plan it out, then go out and shoot it. And some of them were spontaneous, some of them were planned, you know, weeks or months in advance, and run around with a camera for 10 hours, shoot the shit out of it, come home, cut it as quick as you can, upload it, get it on the internet, and then watch it do its thing. And that was every day? Uh, not every single day, but I, honestly I can't remember how many episodes in a season, but it was a lot. Yeah. It was it was pretty hectic, and I was doing that plus photographing and then coming back to doing that. And that first season, we were just fucking making it up as we went. We didn't really know what was going to so happen. So was there concepts you worked with with episodes? or? Yeah, totally. So like some were on events, some were on a specific type of writing uh, some some you know some of some of the events asked uh, some of the episodes were just on specific writers you know mm. so it was really mixed content but we were just trying to make videos that people could consume could consume quickly and would find interesting yeah um because it was the start of this time where media could be available quickly rather than waiting for a long time for it yeah um and we just saw a huge window there mm. so yeah we did mdtv for we did a few seasons of it and it just kind of gained traction we we got slightly more budget to spend more time making these things and it went online then it went on television and yeah Rebet was the master of getting content to the masses mm. like we'd put it on nzsnowball.com but then it would end up on Transworld and it would end up on you know all these other news sites then it would go to TV and it was like he had the way to connect all the dots together yeah so he could actually make stars out of Joe Shredder absolutely yeah yeah totally right mm. and is there um a for a place we can see those episodes now online <laughs> well before coming here i i googled like mdtv yeah. and the only place i i have a few of them on my personal vimeo channel but i couldn't find them anywhere else so they might mm. just be gone so i'm just trying, <laughs> trying to remember like an episode of that like was that was that you guys that you were following will and abby when Layla, the pup, was just born around Canterbury, it was fresh snow or some shit? Uh, or, no, no, no. Well, yeah, like the episodes varied everything from competition coverage. We did do a Canterbury trip with Will J and Browner. Um, but yeah, it was more kind of like regular content that just popped up, powder days at your local hill, that sort of thing. Mm. All right. Mm. And um, there's some film projects that would be real cool to talk about. The first one that springs to mind, we've talked about him already, was uh, Will Jackway's interpretation. Because that actually made, like, New Zealand news. Yeah, and, yeah. And was... that was quite a incredible feat, oh, I thought. You know? Thanks, Tony. Now, that, that is a project that holds a, a special place in my memories, for sure. Um, that kind of just came about because I knew Will Jay. I'd been photographing with him for a while, and I got into film, and... I was just so fascinated about who he is. Like, he's mm. the most incredible person, and everyone that you meet will be like, oh, Will Jazz is the nicest guy in the world. Mm. And through being in the mountains with him and hanging out with him, getting a little bit under his lid and, and finding out what makes him tick, and I was like, this guy's story needs to be 
told this way. And I guess in snowboarding at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of videos that had a narrative of that description. It was kind of just like action porn and hucks and, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. So to bring something through with a little bit more soul. So honestly, that was just a passion project. We scrambled together a few grand from a few different sponsors and shot some shit over a season. I think I convinced Harris Mountain Heli to give us a heli for a day in exchange for some footage or something like that. And we went out and shot it. And then, yeah, when we... um. And we got some footage from Auntie Audi as well. He'd been filming with him for some projects. So we cobbled this thing together and and we're just stoked that it spread a good message and a good story and good vibes of like, you know, how people can can kind of choose to live and interpret Mm. what they do. And when we put it online, it it went gangbusters, which was pretty rad. Um, It toured all the film festivals, picked up heaps of different awards, as you say, made some mainstream media and it got a Vimeo staff pick, which is kind of like the filmmakers, uh, the best thing you can have on your CV. That's like the coveted uh, award of online filmmaking, basically. So, wow. yeah, yeah, it did pretty well at the well, time. I have no idea it won all these awards. Yeah. It's unreal. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think it was just honestly at the time, it just had a unique place in, in the videos that were coming out. Mm. And Will's such an incredible human being and such an amazing snowboarder, of course. Let's not forget that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was just a cool story that needed to be told. Yeah, I feel like it resonated a lot with people that didn't even snowboard. Yeah. And- Totally, yeah. totally, man. And that that's kind of been, as my career, obviously my career started in snowboard photography and snowboard filmmaking, but now I've segued out into all sorts of things. But to create a story that can sort of resonate with the biggest audience is, mm. is why you want to make a film. You want it to touch people, right? And Will, yeah. Will J does that. Yeah, because so, yeah. Yeah, I remember posting that on my Facebook and then all the comments from people on Facebook friends that don't even snowboard it even interested like wow unreal what a rad guy rad you know well that's what you make Mm. films for man that's it right there yeah i remember being at uh what used to be shooters water bar yeah yeah that's right and i think i might have ranted and raved both you and will about how i was a fan of it I, I think I was like, "Come on, can I can I buy a DVD copy?" <laughs> yeah, oh, those are the days of premieres and bars. Yeah, time, yeah, for sure. But now we're stoked on that, and it's a good kick up the ass actually to make more films with stories like that. Mm. So cool. was that film your first one along those lines that you made, or? Yeah, I guess it was probably my first snowboard short film, yeah. Yeah, outside of, I've been doing lots of TV and episodic content for years, you know, lots Mm. of these kind of shows, but my first sort of mini documentary in that sort of world. Mm. And so as an outside looking in, this is probably a dumb question, but Mm. what would be the difference between the online content you did with MDTV compared to a small doco? Yeah, I guess the online series that we used to create were very quick turnaround. They were based on events and kind of quickfire topics that would pop up. Um, the film I made with Will J was a much deeper dive into uh, one human being's way of living life, you know? Mm. It got beneath the surface and it takes a lot longer to film something like that. You don't go yeah. out and shoot that in a day. You shoot that in many months or more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So did you find with the um, the shorter films, mm. the um, uh, quick turnaround, that there was moments where you might have to compromise quality just to get something out, or oh. is that not even an option? No, 100%. Yeah, yeah that, that sort of content is it's news, basically. Yeah. Uh, you're 
turning it around and getting it out quick and out the door and um yeah it's definitely it's very different to making a film that you want to sit on the shelf for the next 20 years yeah um but there's also pleasure in that like i used to get a lot of a kick out of being able to make something so quickly edit it so quickly and get it online and then watch it spread that was pretty fucking cool (laughs) and in those days people weren't really doing that and there was a lot of good that came from it it certainly opened doors you know Mm. yeah and another um film project i wanted to ask you about it was not well it actually is quite related to snowboarding (laughs) um is the winter of wales yeah winter of wales even though they're skiers they all actually rip on fucking snowboards (laughs) that they do that they do Mm. yeah fuck winter of wales i owe a lot to the wales brothers and to that particular Mm. project um so before we get into that, did you grow up with the Wells Boys here then? Or? So I knew the Wells Boys, but I wasn't like close friends with them. So I kind of knew Jossie from afar and I'd say day to him, but he was a few years younger than me. And yeah, I actually knew Jossie through swim racing as kids. But <laughs> apart, apart from that, I, you know, he wasn't a friend. He was someone that I'd see from a distance and say day to. Um, but basically... Winter of Wells was born after years of making these snowboard web series shows, these regular um, shows, and I started kind of branching out into all areas making this episodic content because there was so much hunger and so much demand for it and people weren't doing it. And, I mean, the story of the Wells brothers, it, it just fitted being told in this format. Obviously, people knew about them, but these four young brothers who are traveling the world um, either being professional skiers or trying to become professional skiers whilst their mum stayed at home and their dad traveled with them like mm. that. That's an incredible story. And that's mm. what I was drawn to. And so I just reached out to Joss and started chatting to him about this idea. And cause I'd had quite a few series behind me to that date, I guess there was some form of credibility there, but, um, yeah, we uh, pitched it into Otomo with this name winter of Wells, and it was very loose. We're going to make some web series, uh, some web shows about the Wells brothers and what they get up to. Um, and man, it, excuse the pun, but it just snowballed. It was a, it was a pretty incredible ride over, probably four or five years so we pitched in the first season which was eight episodes in New Zealand and and we went out and we started making those and straight away I just clicked with Joss as soon as I started working with him and I can remember the first time I followed him through the terrain park doing a follow cam and I'm on a snowboard and he's on skis and he is just going Mac 10 I'm just like I can't believe how quick this dude is skiing and how solid he is and how incredibly good he is obviously his athletic prowess needs uh you know it's everyone knows how incredible joss is on skis but i just remember this being like holy shit man this is happening like this i'm shooting joss you know Mm. and um yeah we just clicked i think he i admired his professionalism his drive his motivation um and he was an absolute pleasure to work with and we just started making videos man Mm. (laughs) um and firing them out and then we did this first season in New Zealand and then it went really well and so we uh, at the end of that season Atomic flew me over to Austria and that was my first insight to I guess the real global ski scene with a big corporate ski manufacturer the biggest uh, producer of skis in the world and um, yeah they kind of took me under their wing and, and they were really happy with how the whole series was going and 
So we decided to take it global, and I think we did something like 30 episodes in total over the next few years. Um, right. Yeah, so we shot we shot heaps, and basically it started online, then we got TV distribution on it, we had it on airlines, all sorts of shit, and this was this short sort of anywhere from 5 to 10 minute bite-sized kind of episodes that would come out, and they'd be... Jossie taking on the biggest competitions in the world with his brothers or free skiing or, or jibbing or whatever. Like, we just mix up the content. And then that went so well that Atomic were like, let's make a feature-length documentary about the family. And it, honestly, it was such an incredible ride and an incredible part of life. And, um, yeah, they funded us to make this feature-length doco. And then over the next year, you know, I had budget to put the um, shot-over camera system, which is this huge gyro stabilized camera on a heli and and chase joss through the pipe at snow park so we're like Holy buzzing shit. through the pipe with the blades of the chopper below the deck and then we're shooting, shooting, shooting these lines and obviously <laughs> joss's skiing is incredible and all the other brothers i shouldn't mm. forget them but um it was such an incredible ride man and i i owe it all to joss and all the other wells brothers and atomic for for that journey it was incredible mm. and definitely like a massive stepping stone for me to be an international filmmaker um, mm. yeah it's cool well, i'm just tripping on that so the helicopter was in the 22 foot half pipe. yeah so thorough, i just remember this Fucking so we're hell. shooting we're shooting joss coming down the pipe obviously then we'd reset and we'd buzz back up the pipe and i'm looking out the the windows of the chopper and the blades are below the lip and i'm like yeah we're definitely close there <laughs> and then we're going down the triple line at snow park and we're like crabbing sideways just above the lift and but that was before drones that's what we yeah. did um so yeah it was that was the heyday of i guess start of career trajectory trajectory and understanding the kind of global audience mm. of snow sports it was it was fucking cool man mm. it was amazing so has um drone technology changed the way you film that sort of stuff now absolutely yep drones have changed the game <laughs> so does has that sort of turned it into uh, more accessible like anyone can go and film that sort of stuff now well a helicopter can still be used in different ways to what a drone can be used they're two mm. different tools but yes it's become super accessible to shoot aerial beautiful aerial imagery mm. and it's amazing man like you get pocket-sized drones now that you can rip out into the back country and shoot a line on them and some of those perspectives and angles you get uh back in the day we would have had to put a chopper up and hang out the mm. side and that would have cost a lot of money <laughs> yeah and so like these drones is just gopros on them or but more of a serious camera attachment or? there's sorts of all levels of drones these days starting from yeah similar to a gopro camera through to we fly big cinema cameras below drones for big commercial jobs. Right. So you can kind of build your rig however you want. Mm. So it's, it's something that um, it hasn't necessarily um, removed the gatekeeper from that style of filming? Uh, it's opened up more creative opportunities, to be mm. honest. Yeah. I mean, I'd say it's made filmmaking better for sure okay and i i was lucky enough to be part of that ride when i was using drones at the very early days before they became mainstream we well shooting winter of wells were in park city and would have a remote control helicopter that was flown on av gas with a homemade gimbal with a photography camera a canon 7d that could do video on it and with some american crew that i hired in to shoot in the pipe one morning for example and we're kind of like in the very early days of pioneering what drones could do mm. and then over the last 
10 plus years they've just become oh yeah chuck them in your pocket hook up your phone away you go didn't used to be that way unreal i remember the first time i heard about drones was at cadrona day at work and i think some some american guy showed up with one of the first commercial drones to prove to the mountain manager how oh look they're actually safe to use you fired it up and then the thing just fucking disappeared over <laughs> over into Arcadia and crashed oh man the early days of drones are yeah. so full of bugs yeah. all sorts of oh, shit he was literally just finished like no this is totally safe we can totally do this here and the yeah the list was spinning people were on the mountain and this thing just took off and you just fucking crashed over in Arcadia like, classic perfect yeah we've, we've, mm. we've had a couple of drones go down here and there mm. <laughs> yeah well, that's got to be kind of hard then, because I imagine they're not cheap either. Nah, they're not. Nah, nah. Mm. Definitely insurance is a good thing when working with drones. Mm. But fuck, for action sports, man, they've changed the game. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Mm. That It enables us to, to view the sport from a completely different perspective mm. and amazing perspectives. Like, And I, I think well, one great example of this is now natural selection, right? This live broadcast that we're watching. Mm. There's follow cam drones which are shooting snowboarding from the perfect angle where you can understand the pitch, you can understand where the ride is going mm. without it being POV GoPro on the head. And that's all live streaming to us out in the rest of the world in an mm. incredible picture quality. And man, that's that's good for the sport, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes people understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely like watching that, um, where were they, bald face? Yeah, yeah. And some of those angles... You actually get to see how steep the runs were that they were on. Like, oh shit! Like, okay, totally. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't actually pop off that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you, yeah. you can't move a helicopter like you move a drone. Mm. There's no way you can get a machine to move that way. So, say filming in Alaska, would you be able to use a drone for that, or is that strictly the domain of choppers? Uh, no, no. You can totally use drones in Alaska. It depends on the altitude, the length of the line, the aspect, all those sorts of mm. things that you figure out. Um, but you can use drones to shoot shorter, shorter lines for sure. Mm. Yeah. So, speaking of Alaska, mm. that brings up another film project that I'd like to ask you about, which was uh, uh, Roland Morley Brown and Jake Coyer with Mates in Alaska. Yes. Uh, once again, another project that I hold very fond memories of. I'd say my best ever backcountry snowboard trip in my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it was pretty incredible. I got the call up from John Forder at Red Bull. Do you want to go to Alaska with Jake and, and Rolly and shoot um, some episodes of this thing called Mates in Alaska? And once again, it's at the time where web video content is just being consumed people are just grabbing it and that's what was kind of um you know it was hot at the time but yeah alaska it has to be experienced i think the size of the mountains is just mm-hmm. almost it's hard to comprehend you, you never feel so small i remember rolling into haynes and uh kind of going over to the helipad on the first day before we flew, looking up at the hills and just going, holy shit, this is this is no joke. Mm. And there's no McDougal's to warm up. <laughs> no, there ain't, there yeah. ain't no caddies around here, mate. So, mm. um, yeah, but the, the couple of weeks that we had there were honestly some of the best memories of backcountry snowboarding. I, I remember, I think we shot there in like late March. You go to Alaska later in the season. Um, that's when the snowpack's a bit more stable there. But I was like, I went to see Jay 
from Burden, I was like, bro, I need a board that can hold up to Alaska because I had some piece of shit in the garage. And Jay was lucky enough, I, he hooked me up with a some sort of Burden power board. Can't remember the type, but so I got this board and then jumped on the um, jet from you know Wanaka, Auckland, Vancouver, Anchorage into into Haines. Two days later, I'm standing at the top of a fucking Alaskan spine run with my camera bag strapped on tripod under my arm, just going, what the hell just happened and how did we get here? So did you have to ride this terrain with that shit on your back? Yeah, so as a snowboard filmer, we're not often riding the exact same terrain as as the riders, but we often have to ride quite tricky terrain to get into place. And Mm. I call it survival snowboarding because you've got 30 kgs on your back. In Alaska, you're in a full harness and you've got a video tripod, which weighs about 10 kgs. So all this shit just throws you off balance, basically. But yeah, I remember, I don't know, the first aspect that we shot, just having to drop into the chute and kind of hack a few turns around to get halfway down the pitch to shoot Jake and Rolly. And I was like, fuck, am I out of my depth here? <laughs> yeah, so because you obviously can't drop the stuff they're going to drop because you want to keep that stuff clean, right? Absolutely, and yeah. Fuck, that's just, I never even thought about that till now. Yeah. It's just like, because I've ridden in Alaska. Yeah. And it's like, there's not, there's not a lot to just fucking... Oh, yeah, I've got my 30kg camera bag. I'm just going to pull up here, set up yeah. a fucking camera. And, like, were you were you on, like, the other side of the valley filming long? Or Yeah, like? so basically when you're shooting that sort of backcountry stuff on tripods, there's two approaches. You either go on, on the same pitch as the riders um, riding, which basically means you've got to ride down parallel to them. It's all pretty steep in Alaska, so you get to a spot where you can kind of set up a bench get your kit off, set your tripod up and shoot that angle shooting across court so you still see how steep it is. Mm. And then the other approach is what we call barbecue angle where you go to the opposing face and you shoot a mega long lens looking straight at the face that they're riding down. And that's kind of how we played out AK. So Vaughn and I, the photographer, would often end up in the same kind of spots. Mm. Um, But yeah, it was certainly a couple of times there where I was definitely shitting myself. I was Mm, like... Did you have to do the toe and shit that Rolly talks about? Uh, I was in the chopper when we dropped them off on the toe and yeah, and that was fucking wild. So Vaughn and I shot that particular face from a long lens angle. So we got dropped in another place. But yeah, we were... Pretty buzzy, yeah. It was like exactly what you'd see in the movies. Literally toes of the chopper on this knife edge ridge. Jake and Rolly tiptoeing out on the skids. And there is nowhere for them to get out. I don't know, it was like fucking 10 square meters or something like that on top of this just massive wedge. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're just in a powered hover and the heli is just like, they're all right, boys, off you get. And then we back out of there. Fucking hell, I mean putting your bindings on is as much of a trick as riding the face. Totally, bro, totally. And I think, actually, did Rolly tell you that our chopper pilot got arrested? No. Yeah. Oh, do tell. (laughs) Yeah, so we had a chopper pilot for the first week there, and he was a real, he was a rooster, great pilot, was putting up, he was the one that put us in that tow-in. Yeah. And then we went back to the helipad the next day, and I forget his name, but he didn't, he wasn't there, and we're like, what happened? Oh, yeah, he got arrested. We're like, okay, we won't ask any more questions. So, yeah, but... Holy Alaska made it's the wild, wild west. Yeah, yeah. Did you see when Rolly clipped the rock? I'm guessing you seen when oh, he clipped the rock bro. and 
So fucking how was that to watch live in front of you? Yeah, like, actually, you asked me about holy shit moments when yeah. filming, and that was definitely one of them. So Vaughn and I, the photographer, on an opposing face, and we're looking across at this just sheer, I don't know how many metres of vert, but big, steep Alaskan line. We watch Rolly drop in and clip his nose and start fucking tomahawking down this thing, and we're just like, are we watching one of our best mates, you know severely disable or kill himself here like what's happening because it's a long way to mm. fall and miraculously he came out of that okay because i'm pretty sure he ragged about well how, how long is it, how big's the line up there a couple of thousand feet uh it was big it was yeah. huge i couldn't tell you exactly but yes we were shitting ourselves and yes when it came through on the comms that he was okay and actually i remember getting in the chopper at the bottom with him and filming an interview straight away i can yeah. remember the sound of the heli and the doors are off and but he was he was like adrenaline was high but he was okay it was pretty gnarly <laughs> mm. and so were you also filming out of the chopper with the doors off you're saying so nah that was when we landed to pick him up in alaska we didn't have budget to do doors off the heli right. so this is the classic thing we i think we went there with like maybe only six hours heli time to shoot over two weeks so this in alaska you can use an hour really well if you're just mm. going out to shoot particular lines but we didn't have budget to whip the doors off and shoot anything from the air so we were always getting plonked on on different zones or writing down different aspects to shoot mm. those angles i mean i love shooting out of the heli and i would have loved to but yeah you just burn up coin yeah right yeah and you get you get some runs in for yourself was that? Is uh, yeah. that even a thing? Uh, it's it wasn't really an ele- well. Everything had a camera bag on, mm. and I'm stoked to get those turns. We definitely had a couple of days where we went out and we couldn't find the terrain or snow conditions that we were looking for, so we had some more kind of mellow runs, but always with a big backpack and tripod. Yeah, yeah. But don't get me wrong, man. Like that, as I say, that's baked in my memories as one of the best trips I've ever done. Yeah, sure. it was fun to watch that project come out. Mm. and we all know how good Rolly and Jake are as snowboarders they're yep. phenomenal but it was quite a trip to watch them be like riders of that caliber be humbled oh uh, yeah totally because it, it really puts it home because you know you're watching like Alaska ones you've always got that dickhead in in the room that's like oh they're only turning I can I can turn I can do that it's like well you couldn't yeah and so that really I think put a zap on a lot of fucking self-proclaimed heroes like holy fuck, those dudes got humbled hard. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't stand a chance. Oh, like, man, it is you know. it is bigger and steeper than you can ever comprehend, and every turn you do blinds you, you know? Yeah. It is it is really hard to put into words just how gnarly it is, and those boys stepped to it so incredibly well, and it was pretty mm. amazing to be a part of that, for sure. Yeah, you get in on the um, on the gun shooting and shit as well. Absolutely, with our mate Pat. Mm. Yeah, no, that, once again, that was all part of the experience. The Alaskan people, they're like Kiwis. They kind of welcome you with open arms, and they've got every toy you can ever imagine. You know, this guy had a, had a bit of ammunition to play with, but he was so hospitable. Like He mm. welcomed us into his house to have some... Uh, elk stew or something he shot this elk and like cooked it up for us and then we're throwing dynamite down on the lakefront there's just some dude that we met in town but it was cool that yeah. that yeah that made the trip for sure yeah and yeah. how well uh received was mates in alaska 
I think it went down pretty well at the yep. time. Red Bull distributed it globally through their global yep. channels, and then they also made a feature length for it, which I think went in some film festivals and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm, uh, well, I'm incredibly proud of the boys for their writing, but mm. we did a lot on a shoestring there, and uh, Alaska, it's, um, it takes time to do anything there, and we only mm. had one little crack at it. So I think we were all really happy with how it turned out. Yeah. Because I remember seeing uh, and, uh, the Absence dudes did a documentary, uh, Lines, and they talk about their like down days. If you go to Alaska, it's like a lot of down days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing working on Mates in Alaska with Jake because he had finally made it to Alaska. He'd been wanting to go there forever. Mm. And, you know, he wanted to prove proved that he was like worthy of Alaska and he's an incredible snowboarder no mm. doubt about that but it was amazing to watch how he attacked things especially within the first few days and I know Jake had so much more that he wanted to do there and he really only just not even scratched the surface like mm. I don't doubt if you gave well both Jake and Roly if you mm. gave them a bunch more budget and a bunch more time they could totally prove that was it. sort of getting to the end of Jake's pro career wasn't it yeah, yeah yeah it was towards the end so I think that was just something that he wanted to tick off you know mm. but man he was incredibly hard working out there mm. and he, he was pushing it um, mm. it took the first day out there you've kind of got to get your guides respect they've yeah. got to they're not just going to throw you into the gnarliest shit yeah. um, Jake wanted to push for that but you had to kind of slowly chip away at it and work your way in there because it's real out there the dangers are, are you know mm. pretty huge yeah. yeah. Oh man, I mean, uh, and I've I've, I've forgotten, I, I forget about Jake quite a bit. Like, actually, he had a long and quite well decorated pro career, didn't he? Oh, like, absolutely. Like he was, was in for a long man. time. And that that trip for me was amazing to get to work with him. Like, I was stoked as a filmmaker to get to go to AK with Jake and Roly, of course. Yeah. Um, two amazing characters, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you um, about, well, it's, it's had a rebrand, Two Bearded Men. <laughs> yeah, Two Bearded Men. So for the past eight years, myself and my childhood friend, Toby Crawford, who I mentioned before, I used to snowboard with him up Cadrona when we were Groms, we started a production company. And basically we started this production company out of Wanaka. And the idea behind it was that we loved making films in, in the outdoors and, and sharing and telling those stories. And we wanted to create a brand uh, that was authentic and real that kind of worked in the corporate space too. So Two Bearded Men is now rebranded to The Beards because our company's grown and that name was kind of holding us back a little bit. Uh, but we make commercials, digital content, uh, documentaries, music videos, TV, all, all sorts of stuff, and, and stills photography as well. So, yeah, that in itself has been an amazing journey. We've um, been lucky enough to work with some amazing clients across a whole lot of industries. There's not really anything we don't touch. Mm. So <laughs> um, is there some stuff that we would know? Oh, we do. I mean, a lot of commercials that you can see on telly or online right. for brands like Air New Zealand, Qantas, uh, Tourism New Zealand, um, 
Hyundai, Plowmans, all, all, all sorts of right. stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, well, commercials we did in the last couple of years in sports, we're lucky enough to work with Zoe Sinnott last year in a pre-Olympic campaign for Snowberry, which is like a skin uh, skincare commercial for right. the Asian market, Nutrigrain with Nico Porteous. Um, they're the kind of sports oh, were, stuff. Were you involved with... Was it Nico that had the Nutrigrain there that they went and summited some peak or something? Oh, that was a Him different Nutrigrain project, but Sam Smoothie and Craig Murray, yes. So that and was our. Were company. you involved with that? Yeah, yeah, we Can made that. Can we talk that. about that? Yeah, totally. Yeah, cool. Totally. What was the story behind that? Yeah, so that one popped up last year. Last year, before anyway. So that was actually yeah another mind blowing experience. So. I haven't really, I've shot backcountry snowboarding and backcountry skiing, but not ski mountaineering. And that is some real man shit. Like climbing up mountains with only ice picks with so much exposure around you is just, it's mind boggling. Like Mm. the mental and physical um, state that you have to be in to do that. So this idea came in from the agency at Nutrigrain and um, to tell a story about these guys climbing and skiing a peak and we went through months and months of pre-production we wanted to do mount aspiring but we couldn't get permission to do that we looked at a lot of different peaks in the region and we ended up on mount avalanche which is just beside mount aspiring it's an amazing like conical shaped peak with a beautiful exposed ridge up the side and yeah months of pre-production to get there we managed to go and shoot it we went up and camped up on the um, glacier at the bottom of mount aspiring set up base camp and over a day, these guys skinned out across the glacier and made the ascent up the ridge of Mount Avalanche. And man, we had the chopper out. We had choppers and drones, but we had the chopper out there. And I can just remember, like, we were up the top of the peak, and this thing's like a knife edge. And there's, I don't know, thousands of meters of exposure on one side. And we're doing circles around. I've just got the door off the chopper hanging out, shooting. Craig, um, Murray and Sam Smoothie climbing up this thing, you can see the breath coming out of their mouths and they're on this rime ice and there's nothing stopping these guys from falling. And they're just on their toes, just chipping away, going up this thing, happy as fucking Larry. And I'm just going, this is cooked. This is actually crazy. Um, So yeah, that was a, a real memorable shoot, but those boys climbed it like it was... No big deal. Then they rappelled down this red ridge and skied off on, on last light. And, um, man, prop, props shit, to that shit. a lot to go into a line right there, eh? To yeah. rappel in. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so what's it like? <laughs> like, you obviously can't have a fear of heights filming from a chopper with the doors off. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, nah, like, no, you, um... I guess the good thing is, and I've done a lot of aerial cinematography in my time, but the good thing is you kind of, you got your eye in the viewfinder and you're so focused on doing the job. If you take your eye off the viewfinder and you go, holy fuck, what am I doing? And all the Mm. time we're asking helicopter pilots to do things they don't want to be doing to get our shot. Okay, can you fly backwards? Can you crab sideways? Can you descend quick enough to follow that skier at full pace, corkscrewing? while we shoot the shot you know like we push pilots hard yeah and there are certainly situations that we've been in where you know shit can go wrong very very quickly that's why like it's all about communication with the pilot talking through exactly how you want to shoot the line before you shoot it planning Mm. it all and then as it unfolds you're in comms with the pilot and you're kind of trying to orchestrate the whole thing Mm. um 
So yeah. there's been some moments where the pilots just been like, piss off. Oh, totally. Pilots yeah. are always telling you um, that they can't do that, you know. And, and do they have the final say on things? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Um, but yeah, we're very lucky in this region to have some of the most talented pilots in the world, you know. Mm. Chopper pilots in New Zealand, the conditions that they fly in and the mountains they fly in are pretty hard work, um, mm. and that's all just their day job. So yeah. they, they tend to like filming jobs because it can be a little bit different for them. Yeah. Um, but you've just got to be quite, you've got to be careful for sure. Yeah. So has there been a couple of moments there that, has there been an idea that you've taken to a pilot and they've been like, nah, like, is there one that springs to mind we can talk about? Or? Probably not relevant to the snowboard audience. It's all stuff outside of this world. I mean, honestly, I've just had so many experiences being only meters off the ground tracking sideways at several hundred kilometers where everything can go wrong in a in a heartbeat but it hasn't (laughs) (laughs) and i'm i'm fucking i'm blessed for that Mm. but i do love helicopters they're good fun and yeah so i remember just even being in going heli warding and flying from you know peak to peak over the valley you know got the door in and everything i'm still like fucking hell yeah bro. so i can't even imagine what that's like being strapped with no fucking door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely have some sphincter puckering moments when you're 10,000 feet off the ground with a door open. And sometimes the camera's not even harnessed to you and you've got some shitty old harness from the 70s and you kind of clipped in. But if the, if you get bucked out the door, it's going to be ugly. Like, it's not going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that's all part of why we do it. We love that shit. It's an mm. adventure. So with the the beards, you've sort of moved into other filming, other sport, action sports as well? Yeah, with the beards, we, yeah, like I say, commercials are our kind of bread and butter at the moment. Mm. But, um, you know, we we cross all all industries, whether it's aviation, automotive, food and beverage, um, tourism. Uh, We have some stuff for NZ On Air, so government-funded documentary series, which are kind of been running for a few years but yeah we're we're a commercial production company Mm. um and it's rad we get to work with teams of anything from like small one-man band shooters who might be out in the mountains shooting snowboarding through to big crews of 30 people on a commercial set or more and kind of everything in between and we get a stoke on all of it it's pretty amazing to run a business with your childhood friend and work with global clients um all out of wanaka man We're, we're very lucky that's pretty cool. And is there any future projects that you're able to talk about? Um, to be honest, we're just chipping away at our company, making it as sustainable as we can. You know, we want to work with more people. We're kind of building, bringing more and more people into our team and uh, trying to hunt for projects that, you know, really spin our wheels. But um, nothing I can speak to specifically but we're just stoked to be doing what we're doing and feel very privileged to be doing it out of Wanaka. That's a cool story though. Childhood friend, snowboarding, still in Wanaka. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, we're we're very lucky, man. It's um Mm. to to turn up to work with your best mate who you've been through a lot of life with and then navigate everything that gets thrown at you in the business world. Mm. Uh and both be really passionate about telling stories because at the bottom of it you know that that's what it's all about for us is telling stories and sharing stories so um whether it's a commercial or a documentary it's just a different format for telling a story so yeah yeah it's pretty cool cool well we're on the subject of films um Mm -hmm. 
What was Trash Films? <laughs> trash Films. So Trash Films was John Waddell. And John was an, you know, he was an artist. He was the manual of, of snowboard films back in the day. Mm. Um, yeah, and all the crew really got on with him. Amazingly talented guy. Had his own thing going on. And yeah, he shot a bunch of snowboard videos around the same time as the Deros. Yeah, so I think well, one I remember was Cheated, which yep. he got a bunch of low-key footage as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, it was, um, once again, that's the core of, of snowboarding. And John came from a skating background too, mm. and yeah, very passionate about snowboard videos. Mm. So were you kicking around with those dudes much? Was This is back when you were shooting film. And yeah, totally. So they were, they were, I guess, my, my crew, mm. <laughs> you could say. So yeah, that definitely, like I travelled quite a bit with those boys. Um, and when we were in Wanaka, that was, that was our gang. Oh, well, that's the notes done there, Tim. So we'll roll into our stock enders if you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite rider? The first person that comes to my mind is Blake Paul. Yeah. Loving watching that guy snowboard. Rad. Just such an effortless style. It's um, it's how I think we wish we could all snowboard. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe he got scored so low on that first run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was crazy, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, favorite mountain? My gut reaction is to think of my favourite New Zealand mountain, which would be Treble Cone. I mean, how can you beat TC? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's as good as it gets. Yeah. Favourite board? Damn. What is my favourite board? I think it would have to be the Battalion Camel Toe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Red name. <laughs> yeah, great name. Um, I got one through photographing with Mitch Brown for Battalion. And I ended up with one of their boards, and man, I've still got it in the garage, and I've ridden it for so many seasons, but it's just a battle axe. Mm. Super cool. Mitch was kind enough to give me a t-shirt to match as well. (laughs) Thanks, Mitch. (laughs) Cheers, Mitchie. (laughs) Uh, Favorite video part? Oh, shit. I'm not like all the other snowboarders that sit in the seat, so I'm probably not going to have the best answer for this. But, I mean, I throw back to a lot of the early days in the forum snowboard videos. I think think about Devin Walsh, you know. Um, Mm. That's where my mind goes straight away, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Understandable, though. His part in the resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Favorite gig? As in music gig? Yeah. To be honest, I don't go to a whole lot of live music. I listen to copious amounts of disgusting hip hop. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of rappers that I like to see live that I haven't seen live. Mm. But yeah, I need to work on that, Tony. I need to get to some gigs, <laughs> mate. Yeah. Favorite city? Ooh, that's another massive question. You're really throwing me on the spot here. And I was in Shanghai recently and that was like being in 20 cities at once it's probably not what anybody else would throw out there but i think for the sheer scale of the place and the fact that it felt like you could be anywhere in the world in different pockets of the city was incredibly memorable um i mean smaller cities outside of that the next place that came to that i just love spending time in was portland portland Mm. oregon is fucking great spot to hang out yeah sort of um Attracts a lot of the creatives, Portland. Yeah, 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 totally. You can kind of be whoever you want to be in that town, and, and that's mm. good. So, yeah. yeah. Favourite track? On a snowboard? Mm. 
I think it's pretty hard to feel the to beat the feeling of doing a backside one eighty off a drop. Mm. Once again, I'm I'm certainly I'm a hopeless snowboarder, but the feeling of dropping off something with your back to it and just slowly spinning is a pretty pretty rad feeling. Mm. Outside of that, just a frontside slash all day. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite board graphic. I'd say it might have to be something that was spurred when I walked into this man cave, and it would be this plague graphic that's up on the board behind, up on the um, wall behind us here, Tony. I have to say, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of a classic one that one, Lolita. Absolutely. Yeah. Who has the best method? Oh, man, you're really testing me there. <laughs> the prestigious method. Oh, Chris Blinkhorn out of the New Zealand Shredders had a pretty oh, yeah. good method on him. Marcus Worley can definitely bang one out there as well. Yeah, I'll state the obvious with Will J. He's got that all day, every day. Um, maybe we give it to Blinky. Blinky. Yeah, Blinky Sweet. takes it. And this is our first of two bonus questions. Oh, fuck. <laughs> What's the key to a good method? The key to a good method, in my opinion, is definitely the back leg poke and tweak like how sideways you can get that thing basically mm. is how long you twang it out there for that, yeah. that's what does it for me anyway yeah rad yeah and final final bonus question mm-hmm. your proudest photo my proudest photo f- favorite photo i was gonna tell you my gut reaction went to that backside 180 of Tim Watson down the snow park stairs. Mm. I mean, I've shot so many, but I think that was just a real classic colors mm. contrast. It was shot at night with flashes. Uh, at the time, it was quite, it was kind of what we believed in snowboarding, something a little bit different, you know. Um, that was like my gut reaction to it, but it's it's a pretty meaty question, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> I've shot thousands in my time. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Yeah, yeah, we'll run with that. Cool. If I think of anything better, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, well, thank you so much for your time, Tim. No, and, thank uh, you. See you up the hill at some point. Legend shot, Tony. Cool. Oh.